The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Hello everyone, I am Maurizio Caschetto and welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Today we are here for a new Legacy Conversation episode with a very special guest. He's a Grammy Award winning composer and conductor and one of the world's most popular contemporary musicians. He is the most acclaimed composer of choral music in the world, but also has a large repertoire of works for a symphony orchestra, symphonic band and solo voice. His groundbreaking virtual choir projects, which consist in having a multitude of professional and non-professional singers singing together via videos submitted online, have united more than 100,000 people worldwide. A graduate of the Juilliard School of Music, he is currently visiting composer at Pembroke College, Cambridge, and recently completed his second term as artist-in-residence with the Los Angeles Master Chorale. In addition to being a composer, he is also an educator, teacher, and a true music ambassador. It's my great honor to have here with me today, Eric Whitaker. Hello, Eric. Thank you for being here with me, and welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Hey, Maurizio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. It's my honor and privilege to have you here as a guest, Eric, really, as I am a huge admirer of your music and your work as an educator. Um, in this podcast, uh, as you know, I talk mostly with musicians and people who work with John Williams, but sometimes I also have a spotlight um, on contemporary composers who have been inspired by John's music throughout their life and career, and you certainly fall into this category. I remember reading some interviews with you several years ago where you mentioned John Williams as one of your main inspirations. So, to kick off our conversation, Eric, I'd love to ask you how and when did you encounter the music of John Williams for the first time? Well, it must be like an entire generation of people that for me it was Star Wars. So I was born in 70 and Star Wars came out in 77, so I would have been seven years old. I don't know how many times I saw it in the theater, but it, it must have been. It was enough that I asked for Christmas that year for the soundtrack to Star Wars. So I got it on, on cassette tape and I, I listened to it till the tape broke. Um, and, and so I, I can't separate my childhood from the music of Star Wars, especially the A New Hope, the very first episode. Well, yes, of course. Well, it, that soundtrack album of Star Wars was really special for many of us because it acted as a gateway for symphonic music. And also, uh, it taught us the incredible power of music as a storytelling. And of course, in those years, John Williams quickly became a staple thanks to the film scores that followed, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Superman and Raiders of the Lost Ark, etc. So was there ever a moment of realization for you, becoming aware that these were the works of the same composer and perhaps somebody definitely above the line? Uh, well, it, I can't remember what order I would have seen these in. The next impression I remember is Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones and then Empire Strikes Back. And Empire Strikes Back for me, even as a child, uh, 
was so far elevated above anything I'd ever heard. And then India, of course, was incredible. And then somewhere around that time, I would also have seen Close Encounters. I don't think I saw Close Encounters in the theater, but somehow I would have seen it maybe in 80 or 81. That's probably the first time that I had what I think of as a transcendental experience, hearing music paired with film. Because of course, in Close Encounters, it's more than just a score. It's actually, it's central to the, the, the fabric of the story. I must have been, by the time I hit 12 years old, those scores alone, I think there was John Williams and there was everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's also for all, all possible music. It was just, of course, no one had an impression on me like John Williams did. It's so great that you mentioned Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of course, because that score also has an incredible amount of impressive choral music. Uh, so I guess for you, as you grew up and became more interested in choral music, that score became a, somehow a, a benchmark for you. And, and speaking more broadly about John Williams' personality as a composer, what is for you the the main quality that he has that gives his music a very strong and specific personality that it's really his own. You know, it's funny. I've thought about this so often because the other thing about John Williams is that he is able to reach his hand into the cauldron of style at just at whim and it's effortless. It's astonishing to me. And in, in fact, you know, I didn't really understand or study classical music until I was 19, 20 years old. And so my first exposure to Wagner and Debussy and Stravinsky and Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Ligeti was all through John Williams yes. writing sort of in those styles. And so I think when I think of John Williams, I think of him as first he more than any composer I know, I mean, really even living composers, we're talking classical or otherwise, mm -hmm. understands the orchestra. He truly knows how to write for the orchestra and make it sing in a way that no one else does. That combined with this, this ability to effortlessly take what he needs from any possible style and then create his own thing. And then finally to make truly dramatic music. That also is, when I think of John Williams Hallmark, it's no matter what I'm listening to, I'm compelled, I'm pulled into the drama of the music instantly um, and in a very nuanced and subtle way. Um, sorry, I could go on and on about this. <laughs> no, but, it, but it's so fascinating to hear from you because I always love to hear the perception from another composer because I guess mm. it's really a, a universe that opens in this, in this regard. And I was really impressed by some of your 
glasses that you put online that were very, very inspiring, even for a non-musician like me. I mean, I'm not a composer. I'm not a musician. It's one of the great regrets in my life, That, but <laughs> maybe it's not too late. <laughs> not too late. Never too late. <laughs> but the way you talked about uh, sketching ideas in a visual style it's, mm. was so fascinating for me because especially when you talk about pieces like Accus or the Sacred Veal or Deep Field as well. Yeah. The way the composition for you starts with a, almost with an image, not a specific image, but maybe more an abstract image. I see some similarities to a composer who writes mostly for movies like John Williams probably proceeds when he starts to sketch ideas. And he often talked about, uh, you know, for him, the most difficult part is writing tunes. Uh, because it's really carving a piece of marble and, and finding what's inside the stone. And he, he seems to do it effortlessly, as you said before. Effort, but endlessly, him, yeah. <laughs> but, but for him, the most laborious process is that. Uh, so f how it works for you? I mean, what is the, the most laborious part for you when, oh, when you well. start to write a piece of music? Well, you said it best. So the, far and away, the, the hardest part for me is the structure of the piece. And, and I think you're right. I think actually, even now, I think I'm in a way writing film scores without films. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's very much from the, the tradition that John Williams established. And so the challenge though for me is that then I have to make my own little film. And it's, it's more abstract than beat to beat and a, a, a strict narrative. But I use all of these visual devices early on to, to help me understand what the structure will be before I, I've, I've, I've always found that when I'm struggling to write the music is because I, I don't know what it is or where I, I'm just wandering in the forest. Yes. And w once, once I establish this is what needs to happen in this moment, then the thing has a chance to flower. And in a way I've always been very jealous of film composers in the, <laughs> that, I mean, they're, they're so handcuffed, right? That they, a cue is one minute and 31.4 seconds, period. That's what it's going to yes. be. And so you've got to be creative within that. But at the same time, then you're locked in. You have to make that work. And one of the things with concert composition, the way I do it is that if you beat your head against the wall for a couple of days and can't solve it, then you can always just throw your structure out the window and go back to study. <laughs> yeah. Right? And there's something very liberating about, well, that's not going to change. So I have to find my, my way through it. Um, yes. But to your original point, it's, I've, I think, very, very visually about the music that I'm, I'm going to create. And there's, there's this deep emotional connection to the, yes. to the imagery, which I see John do over and over. I'm, I'm also just fascinated to hear you say that, that the hardest part for him is writing these melodies because I can't think of a single other, in my mind, when I think of the greatest melodists of all time, I think Mozart, the Beatles, and John Williams. I mean, <laughs> who, who writes more, more indelible melodies than John yes. Williams? It's un, unreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for him, it's also a matter of strict discipline and being so dedicated to his work and um, always being around the muse, <laughs> so to speak. I don't think there is anything mechanical in what he does. Quite the opposite. I mean, all the music is conceived inwardly, I would say. Yeah. Um, of course, the film often dictates the style of the music and, and the length and even the structure, and he has to make the music work within those, I wouldn't say limits, but within those parameters. But he's always able to come up with something that works both as a companion for the scene, for the film, 
and also as a piece of music on its own. Yeah. Um, and this is a huge topic, of course, but I'd love to have a small musical interlude now, Eric. And and actually, it fits well with what you mentioned a moment ago when you said that you feel that often you're writing film scores without film. Um, this is a very interesting topic that I'd love to investigate further with you. Uh, but first, let's hear an excerpt of one of your pieces that falls beautifully, in my opinion, into this category. This is a piece for large symphony orchestra called Equus, uh, the Latin word for horse, and it was recorded for Eric's second album, Water Night. It's performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, another nice John Williams connection there, <laughs> conducted by Eric Whitaker. So this is Equus. Thank you. 
and this was the first three minutes of Equus, composed by Eric Whitaker, here performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by the composer. As I was saying, introducing the piece, um, this is a wonderful example of your music, Eric, having a very strong film-like quality. And, and of course, this is a big symphonic piece, but it's something I noticed also in some of your other works, even in some of your more abstract poetry-based pieces for choir. I mean, a very deep, strong narrative quality. Mm. Is this something you consciously pursue when you start writing a piece? I mean, a specific narrative journey? Uh, it's it's an interesting thing because it it's never in my mind a, a, a defined narrative. Mm-hmm. It's never now now our hero loses his parents and sets yes. out on his journey and then yeah. you know increase. It's it's never that defined. However, the structure of a narrative mm-hmm. is is sort of imprinted onto the piece. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yes. So I can look at several of my pieces and look at them and say this is actually the hero's journey. Yes. It's the structure of the hero's journey, but without here's the leitmotif of the hero and here's the villain and here's the but I can even see where the climax is is exactly where you'd have you'd have the climactic moment in a hero's journey and then the denouement and it's it's I think I could almost see it being transposed onto a narrative like a story yes. either either written or or filmic so but I think I feel that more than I, I feel the beats of the of the narrative journey more than I feel the the details of it mm-hmm, yes and and this adds to another of your distinctive traits which is your <laughs> utterly incredible way of working with harmony and then polychords producing those magnificent tone clusters that really open up our ears to a new level of perception and help us finding beauty in something that perhaps on the page looks <laughs> almost as scary, you know? And again, you spoke several times about this aspect of your music, you know, the concept of the golden brick and starting from the very small to get to the very big, yeah. but to taking care of the whole journey. I mean, it's not just a strong beginning and a strong end, but what matters is also the journey within these two opposites. That's exactly right. And I, I often think when I'm composing a piece, when I'm, first I should say, I, I wonder how John works on this, but I, I never start at the beginning. I'm, I'm always writing, I write the structure and then I usually work on some middle bits or the end or something. The, end, the beginning usually comes er, later on. But for me, I'm, I'm hyper aware of taking the audience from step to step to step, the listener, so that mm-hmm. all of those bits in between are, I guess what we traditionally call developing an idea, but I never think of them as developing. I think of them as, okay, you've got that. Okay, now this. Okay, you've got that. Now this, right? There's this cumulative effect. And then hopefully then, then you can get to the climax. And if you've, if you've brought the audience along with you each step of the way, then the, the climax can, it can be in any genre, it can be in any harmonic language. It can be, like you said, as dense and, and thorny as possible. But, but because you've very accurately establish the rules of the world that you're building then it just blossoms in front of you and and i think uh, almost any listener will be you you can look at this i mean think of close encounters right there's like yes he he often dips into the sound like ligeti for instance right these really dissonant clustery but they're so tied to the dramatic moment that the audience will absolutely accept it without thinking for a moment how dissonant those sounds are
And again, we are back to Close Encounters and <laughs> and how dense and layered that score is. I mean, mm. for example, the very beginning of the film, which opens with those high string harmonics playing whole tone chord that finally explode in that huge C major chord. This was, in a nutshell, what you <laughs> perhaps tried to do over the course of 20 minutes in your <laughs> yeah, magnificent <laughs> piece, Deep Field, which really tells a, an incredible journey from the very small to the very big uh, over the course of 20 minutes. And, and it stretches out for that time what, what John did perhaps in, <laughs> in 30 seconds. I mean, I see some similarities there. I'll, I'll tell you, it's so perceptive of you, of you to say that. So there are two moments in deep field where this was actually my writing process i took cues from close encounters of the third kind and then i stretched them i slowed them down i wanted to see how long can you sustain this kind of feeling and then i built those moments around a stretched out version of close encounters cues yeah. but so where where john williams might take 12 seconds in a musical moment i would stretch it to three minutes and then see what that felt like so it, the his fingerprint is literally on on that piece <laughs> it's like uh, close encounters cubed <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> I saw that you still write uh, pencil and paper. I think you are one of the very few that still does this way, like like John Williams. I mean, uh, how important is that tactile 
process for you to, to have actually the pencil writing on the page. You said it best. It's the tactile process. It's something, I, I don't know why. I, I, I'd love to hear what John Williams says about this. I'm assuming it's just because he's done it that way for so long. Mm -hmm. But I think, for me at least, it activates a different part of my mind. I find writing into the computer so unsatisfying. You know, there's, there's one thing to get to the end of the day and have a stack of sheets of paper that you've, you can actually see the physical work you've done, even if you're going to throw it all away. There's something so unsatisfying about save. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Copy, paste. <laughs> yeah, you have no sense of, of what you've worked on all day. Um, and the other thing is that I, I feel, even no matter how big my computer screen is, I feel claustrophobic because I can't get a sense of the big structure. Mm -hmm. And so usually when I'm writing, I'll have my pages laid out all around the room around me so that I can see, okay, this and this and this. And I get a sense of where it's going. I find that if I don't do that, like if I'm writing into the computer, I, I get what I call pageitis, which is that I sort of write one page to the next page to the next page. And each page looks great. They're little islands. But then when the structure starts to unfold, you can feel how modular it all is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I can't imagine now working any other way than pencil and paper. And you don't need software updates for those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly. Talking instead of the scene of the contemporary music for the concert hall, uh, and this ties to what we were saying a moment ago, I noticed a very strong current now of concert hall music written in a very powerful, expressive, we could say film-like or cinematic vernacular, with lots of composers not being afraid anymore of writing music that is still tonal and melodic and yeah. direct. Yeah. I mean, not unlike the film scores of John Williams in many ways. And strangely enough, instead, current music for films especially in Hollywood, uh, is going in another direction and became more influenced by electronics and modem beats and yeah, yeah. synthesizers or and perhaps more based on minimalism. I mean, it seems like if somebody wants to write something like the classic scores, he or she might have more chances of doing that in the concert hall rather than in Hollywood. I remember an interview with you where you said that you moved to LA because you wanted to work in the film industry, right? Mm, yeah, which I'd still love to do. Okay. I, I, you know, I, I, I had the perfect experience in that I got to work with Hans Zimmer on a couple of movies. And so I got to sort of watch him do his thing. You know, it was this <laughs> mentorship in a way. And, and then realize, okay, I, I, would, I would love to do maybe a project or two, but I don't want to, I can't imagine having a life as a film composer. I just don't have the personality for it. Mm -hmm. um, but it was amazing to watch him work and to watch him do his thing. And I, I think what you're talking about is very real, this idea that cinematic music has come to the concert hall and film is otherwise. And my feeling is that a lot, a lot, a lot of that has to do with, the, with how we make movies now. There's, there's now fantastic sample libraries. There's real technology available to composers, so much so that you can not only mock up, but even make a pretty convincing, strong sound coming from the speakers. Mm -hmm. And you must because that's what you need to present to the director or to the producers. Yes. That's the way the film works now. I think John Williams must be the only, literally the only composer left who can just play something at the piano and say, <laughs> trust me, just trust me when we get in and you hear it for the first time. And the challenge, the real challenge with that is that those samples can do some things really well. Like for instance, they can do marcato strings. Samples sound fantastic doing that. 
And so you hear lots and lots of film scores now. Because a director can sit down in front of the screen, hear the mock-up of it, and say, yep, that's going to work. Mm-hmm. But the kind of stuff that John Williams does where it's almost like calligraphy with the music, it's, it's so painterly. It's so difficult to mock all of that up convincingly. It's, it's too sophisticated, I guess, to... Yeah, it's, it's, it, the, it won't really do its thing. And it's so much work for then a director to say, you know, it's not really the direction I was thinking of going. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's try something else. So you, you just don't do that. You can't work that way. In concert music, however, though, you've now got an orchestra sitting in front of you. You've got weeks or months to write this piece and to really think about what an orchestra can do. Mm-hmm. And now you have this library of cinematic music that's 70, 80, 90 years old this yes. legacy, including John Williams. And so then also the people coming to the concert hall, they're all our generation and younger, and this is their vernacular. People know, know classical music from the film much more than they know classical music. So of course, that's the, that's the music you want to write. It's in, the, it's in the language of the people that are listening. Yes, yes, and it's a pendulum that swings, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because then, as it happened to many of us who fell in love with John Williams' music then started to become interested in classical music and discover the works of the great masters. Yeah, and that's right. And we see the red line that connects the past to the present. So I am sure there will be a moment sometime in the future where melodic and symphonic scoring for films will be back in a big way again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to have another musical interlude now, Eric, um, and this ties perfectly with what we just discussed. This is a piece of yours called The Seal Lullaby. It's a heart-rending song that you originally wrote as a pitch for a score to an animated feature that in the end never got produced. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> However, luckily for the world, you rescued the piece and arranged it for choir. So this is The Seal Lullaby by Eric Whitaker.
And that was The Sea Lullaby by Eric Whitaker. Lovely song, Eric. Thank you, Maurizio. So, speaking again of John Williams, um, Eric, do you have any favorites among his works? I mean, not necessarily just the classic scores we already mentioned, uh, but, I don't know, even among the pieces we he wrote featuring voices or choirs. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Do you have a specific piece that you particularly love? You know, I don't know his concert music that well. I it's um, so when I think of just like the concert pieces that he's written, I'm not sure if I have a favorite. But when it comes to film scores, I, I knowing I was going to talk to you, I started thinking about what are even my <laughs> top ten scores, not even moments from movies, and I, I couldn't even make a top ten list. When I think chorally, there is there's a um, there's a cue towards the end of AI, where they're flying over over New York, which is now you know. 100 years in the future and it's all iced over a thousand years in the future it's all iced over and there's that beautiful haunting acapella choral music that's another example of music that is quite it's not atonal but it's definitely working on the edges of tonality but it's so perfect for that icy distant futuristic world that that is created i've listened to that so many times and i think it's nice to hear it all together with our listeners so this is a wonderful piece called Journey Through the Eyes by John Williams from the film score of AI Artificial Intelligence. It's an absolutely astonishing piece. I love it. Oh, it's so beautiful. And, and the whole score, it's, I mean, it's so amazing. It has so many ideas in it. And, you know, you hear John writing in a minimalistic 
kind of style in several pieces is so so fascinating i mean it's one of his most i guess diverse and richest scores in many ways this is this is not to get off topic this is one of the things you know we talked about the way he dips into styles but it's in a way it's more than that it's like he th there's a cultural essence to some of the styles of music mm. right for instance you take wagner you said strauss or mahler mm -hmm. that kind of high dark deep romantic sound that we associate in a very specific way not only with grandness and and opera and mm -hmm. european conquest but early film music and then you're able to use that in star wars and not only use those sounds but then kind of tie back to that cultural yes, yes. legacy and he he does this so completely I, th I think of like born on the fourth of july where it's almost like these samuel barber essays that samuel barber never wrote but they're not barbaresque <laughs> yes. they're but they're somehow tying from the the essence of Americana, mm -hmm. or Catch Me If You Can, right? Which is, it's not just that, he, oh, John Williams gets to now finally write in the jazz style that he grew up in. Actually, it's that it harkens back to the essence of the 60s, right? It it's somehow captures the, the cultural zeitgeist of that moment that we all think is the 60s, and then yes. is able to lift that up and elevate. It's so rich, and I I try to do that in my own music in the in the smallest way. I, 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 <laughs> you certainly do, absolutely, yeah. And you are also able to convey a sense of wonder that, in my opinion, is somehow Williams-like. Um, I am thinking about your piece called Cloudburst, which I think it was the very first piece of music of yours that I ever listened to. I mean, I discovered your music thanks to Cloudburst really. And I remember then watching a TED talk you did several years ago. Mm. And when discussing the origin of the piece, you know, experiencing a real life cloudburst, uh, you call it a true Steven Spielberg moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and totally. of course, I understood what you meant. And it felt so natural for you to refer to that world, uh, which of course relates also to the music. Not much in, in the literal sense, of course, as the piece is based on a poem by Octavio Paz, and the poetry is perhaps the most abstract way of expressing an idea. But I find a connection to the piece in the way you take the listeners by the hand and bring them with you on this journey. That's such a nice way to say it. Yes, and that's a perfect example. Like that, I can say something like, it's this Spielberg-like moment, and that cultural totem is so profound that you and I know exactly what we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? We, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 and, and it's deep. It's not just a surface idea. It's a deep, yes. deep idea. And that, that then John Williams as a composer is able to use those totems as a kind of currency that he can weave them throughout the music so that you, you fall deeper into the music just than, the, than beautiful music that's bring, bringing drama to life. You actually feel somehow connected to the culture of the mm -hmm. of the time period and of the story that's being told that is so true yes yes and i also think one of john's greatest skills is his innate sense of drama and taking the simplest elements of a story like in et for example and make them richer and more profound i mean if you look at how he scored that film et again he starts from the very small with a solo of the piccolo against the backdrop of the starry night, and then how he accompanies the aliens descending from the starship all the way through 
uh, and the very first encounter between Elliot and E.T. with the solo harp and building slowly and adding elements, a few notes of the theme, and then waiting for the big moment where bangs, he unleashes the full theme with the whole orchestra, you know, for the scene where the bike goes over the moon. And then, of course, all the way through the finale, you know, very operatic, with a timpani banging, tonic dominant, yeah. tonic dominant, yeah. you know, like 2001. Just like Zarathustra, yeah. Yeah, like Zarathustra. And, and you feel every bit and every moment so strongly because the music really accompanied you all throughout the journey. And and it sounds so sincere and he does it so convincingly yeah, be, it's because so he really feels it. Yeah, that's the, and he, that's the thing, maybe that's the defining feature for John besides all of them. I mean, I could go on and on about the music, but is that he understands the drama on the deepest possible level. The st- exactly like you said, the story that's being told I think you must have seen this post, or maybe you didn't, but I, I posted a couple of weeks ago about the Anakin's theme from yeah, yeah, know, from the and I basically Beautiful. I was trying to say as as gently as possible that John Williams understood Anakin better than George Lucas did. You know, <laughs> like I want to see that movie. I want to see the movie where yeah. where that story is told because it's this. Oh yeah, it's just a profound understanding of the character and the the importance of the journey. And when paired with a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg, then you get endless new colors and shades and and ideas there. But in the hands of sometimes a a lesser film, you see that John Williams is doing 95% of the heavy lifting. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and you just have to turn the volume down whenever you watch a movie scored by John Williams in many cases to understand how crucial the role of the music Mm, is. Agreed. Anyway, let's hear a brief excerpt of Cloudburst, namely uh, the final section of the piece where we hear this truly spectacular sonic depiction of that Spielberg-like moment you experienced. So this is Cloudburst by Eric Whitaker.
And that was an excerpt from Cloudburst by Eric Whitaker. So Eric, since you're based in LA, have you ever met John Williams or exchanged a few words with him? I, I shook his hand is all, but it was, it's a funny experience. So I, I had a friend who played in the string quartet, the Kronos Quartet, uh -huh. Jeff Ziegler. He was the cellist. And he invited me to come see a concert. They were premiering a piece by Thomas Newman, who's also a, another hero of mine. So I came to Disney Hall and then he texted me. He said, why don't you come backstage and you can meet Thomas Newman. So I was so excited. Oh my God, Thomas wow. Newman. <laughs> so so I, I come back and backstage, it, it's almost completely empty, except there's this little circle of people all standing there, just this group of men all standing around. So I see Jeff, he kind of waves me over and I come and I step into the circle. And in the circle is Thomas Newman, John Williams, Esapekka Salonen, uh, John Adams, Frank Gehry, wow. and then Jeff and me. <laughs> I just sort of stood there like, what is happening right now? I mean, all of my heroes in one place, you know? So wow. I shook John's hand and I, I was very proud of myself because what I wanted to say was, actually it was just start gushing and just say, if it weren't for you, I don't know what I would do with my life. And you're, the, it's the same reaction I'd have if I ever met Paul McCartney. I think I would just, I, I would just, um, anyway, that's the only time I've ever met him. <laughs> yeah, I guess he's always so, grateful for people showing their love for his music and you know there are now at least two generations of people of uh, you know musicians and composers but even just film lovers or music lovers that feel so attached to his music and I think he's very he's very aware of that and he's very grateful whenever someone you know shows up to him and says you know, Maestro, I love your music for Star Wars or E.T. or Superman, even though they are the, the oft-mentioned one by, by the majority of the audience. But he's always very, very, I think, very humble in that regard. He, he's very modest about that stuff. That's exactly right. I've often wondered what is the score, if there is one, if, if I were to come up and say, I, I'm such a fan of all of your work, but this score is the one, you know, is there, because I'm sure he <laughs> must hear, there's the top 20 films, right? But does he ever hear, does anybody ever say, I, I loved Lincoln, right? It's so subtle and delicate, mm -hmm. or I loved Munich. That's a, such an interesting, beautiful, haunting score. I wonder which score he thinks Actually, I wonder why that one doesn't get talked about more often, or does he not think about it at all? <laughs> yeah, but he has a, such a huge catalog of in, astonishing works that sometimes even a, an incredible score, like, I don't know, Empire of the Sun, for example. Oh my God. Maybe don't make the top 15 or top 20 list of the majority of the people, because, I mean, it's it's so hard to, to make a, a list of just 15 or just 20 great John Williams scores. He did, he did it so many, so many. And, and, and for example, that score in Part of the Sun, it has some gorgeous writing for, for choirs and yeah, that's right. solo voices and truly astonishing piece. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, and it's, it, that's another example where he took... Well, that I also think of something like Memoirs of the Geisha, right? Where it's, oh, yes. it's like that he was able to do that, that he writes so elegantly. And this is the other hallmark I think of John Williams' writing is it's just always so tasteful. It's so nuanced and interesting. The other thing that I'm always struck with John Williams is that he never, there's never just a traditional, simple gesture. He gives every, every instrument its own little thing. One of my friends is John Powell, and when he was getting ready to to work on the solo movie, yeah, you know, he and I were both geeking out and saying, "Oh my God, John Williams is going to come!" You know, he's writing, writing this theme for it, and he'll come and do. And he was saying that 
he was really struggling with just the the weight of having to write within this legacy. And I said to him, which probably wasn't helpful, I said, yeah, I think I would be most terrified of the idea that, that John Williams' music is filled with all of these flourishes as well. And they're all different and unique. You know, it's never just... <laughs> It's never cut and paste. It's always the flutes are... They've got their own little life happening. Yes. For the players, it must be so much fun, you know, to sit down and play really challenging, super well-written music. But John Williams never lets a detail go like that. It's always so intricate. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. And I also think that the other great thing is that he never exchanges that level of complexity for something dry or emotionless. I mean, his music is always, again, very direct and very emotional while being sophisticated at the same time. That's a very rare quality, I think. The other great thing, uh, and I talked about this so many times on this show, is that it's the people who are at the core of his music. I mean, especially the musicians who play his music in the orchestra. Yeah, that's right. I talked with many of the musicians who performed in many of his classic scores, mainly the great Los Angeles studio players, but also members of the London Symphony Orchestra and the musicians also of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And they all say about the level of professionalism and precision that John has when he's on the podium. And of course, he asks the, the best from the players. And, but at the same time, he knows intimately what everyone is able to bring in terms of musicianship and also in terms of heart that they yeah. put <laughs> at display when playing his music. I mean... Uh, he often writes with specific people in mind, and not just for superstars like Yo-Yo Ma or Anne-Sophie Mutter, but also when he writes for studio musicians in Los Angeles or members of the London Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, exactly. Born on the 4th of July is a perfect example of that. That trumpet solo at the beginning, was, I can't remember the man's name, the, from the, played with Boston Symphony for years, but also he's, he was John's trumpeter. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, yeah, just... Just he knew what he could do, knew that beautiful melancholy sound that he could get from the trumpet that only he could get. 
Mm-hmm. And how important is for you to to the personality of the musicians? Because you work mm. with choirs, and of course, you know it, it's an ensemble, but at the same time, is an entity. We could say that yeah. acts like something you know of its own. Uh, so, how important is for you to uh, to write it's, for people? <laughs> for me, it's essential. It's um, and if I'm if I'm writing a piece for a group that I've never worked with, in my mind, I'm actually thinking of other singers that I've worked with that I'm, I write for them in a way, and I can see it's never just an alto line for me. It's always, I can see their faces in my mind as I can imagine them singing and I can imagine their tone, their color. It would be impossible for me just to write the idea of an abstract, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sure John must do this, like you said, to the nth degree where he can picture himself on the scoring stage or picture himself on the concert hall stage and picture the orchestra around him. and so that it, it leaps off the page. Oftentimes in contemporary composition, it seems that the page is almost the end of the process, that you can look at the page yeah. and it's super intricate and it's, it's beautiful on the page, but there's, then there's that leap. It's more like a blueprint, right? And then you have mm-hmm. to build the house. Mm-hmm. And the building the house is getting those actual people on that actual stage to make this thing happen. Yeah, music is a living thing. And Truly. It breathes and moves like a living creature. And that is perhaps even truer when it comes to the music made by the human voice. I mean, the few choral music concerts I've attended uh, were very powerful in that regard. Of course, there is the element of the air moving when people start singing and it's something that you feel inside yourself. Uh, But when the harmony starts to get richer and you get through those beautiful tone clusters and the frequencies start to feel the whole gamut, and then you hear the overtones, it's that when it really starts to become something transformative and even transcendent. Yes. And this ties back to our roots as human as human beings, I think, because voice was surely the, the first way we learned to make music together thousands of years ago. So this connects to a very spiritual side of our lives, and no recording or audio equipment will ever reproduce that deep power of experiencing a group of human voices singing together in the same place. And I guess for you, it's even more powerful and profound given that you are there conducting on the podium and maybe you start to discover new things. Every time. The other thing about choral music, of course you get this with with any kind of live music, but especially with a cappella choral music, is that I think there's also just a sense of wonder and awe from Mm -hmm. that you can't believe the human voice can do that. Mm -hmm. Do you know? It's so beautiful and, and subtle and nuanced and delicate and every word has has its own little universe inside of it you know the vowel and the color and then the meaning of the word that's being spoken and so i find that if it's if it's performed well and you have the right hall and the right audience you can have these transcendent experiences really transcendent that that as you say like you're you're changed as a listener you're vibrating on the inside in a different way. Yeah, you feel it in the body, and, and then it starts to influence your thoughts in your mind. I mean, it's all connected. And I think your music is a wonderful example of something that speaks to the soul while getting the mind very active and curious. In many of your pieces, I can hear the brilliant mind at work and the intellectual ideas at the core that inspire the piece, uh, you know, be it a text from a poem or an image or something more abstract sometimes, but then there is a very strong gut feeling that connects the listener to the more primal emotions. 
I mean, a piece like Aquas, as we said before, has a very clear and direct arc, and it's also very cinematic. Yeah, very cinematic. And evokes feelings of joy and flight of fantasy. Uh, and of course, I mean, it's not just like picturing a horse riding. I mean, you can develop your own film while listening to it, but at the same time, it puts the listener in a very perceptive, active state uh, of, of attention uh, for the way you play with dynamics and orchestration. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just beautiful. <laughs> no, thank you. You know, I, w- I was going to say one one other thing about this this idea of sitting and hearing live music and hearing it in your body is that I where I truly realized this was during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. It, it wasn't, maybe you experienced this too, it wasn't only that I was struggling with being so isolated from everyone, but I was struggling with not actually having the sound in my body, mm-hmm. being in front of that sound. And it's it's one of the great gifts of being a conductor is that even during rehearsal, your whole day is spent just bathing in these beautiful sounds. You have the best seat. It's all focused at you. Um in, in many ways, it's the best job you could possibly have. Also, it's an aerobic workout, you know, so you're, you're breathing well. And you're, it's, it's just pure joy. And for two years, not being able to do any of that, I, I realized how, how deeply I needed that, mm-hmm. just yeah. that physical sensation of the sound in my body. Mm-hmm. Yes. And now it's a liberating feeling to get back regularly to concerts all around the world. I mean, it's, it's great. One of the greatest feelings. Truly. And Eric, before leaving... Uh, I'd love to have a final musical interlude. This is one of your signature piece. Uh, it's called Lux Aurumque, based on a poem by Edward Ash and translating into Latin by your friend and frequent collaborator, uh, the American poet Charles Anthony Silvestri. The piece was written in 2000, but it became a sensation because it was the first virtual choir you made. Yeah. Uh, you know, the stunning multimedia project that connected together thousands of singers from dozens of countries worldwide and that now has arrived at its sixth edition. I think this piece really embodies, better than any explanation, <laughs> a lot of what we discussed today. So here's the Eric Williger singers performing Lux Aurumque.
and this was Lux Aurumque, performed by the Eric Willeker Singers. So, Eric, it's been a true pleasure talking with you and a really inspiring talk. I, I very much hope to see you performing soon here in Europe and perhaps also here in Italy. First, thank you for saying all of that, Maurizio. And yes, I want to come to Italy as soon as... Where are you in Italy, by the way? In Would, Milan. In Milan. Okay, done. <laughs> I'll be there as soon please as possible. Come, please, uh, yeah. please come. <laughs> um, Milan is so beautiful. Italy and Milano is one of my favorite places in the world. So so regardless if, if I'm performing, you and I will have a very long dinner. Oh, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm already looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. So, Eric, really, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been wonderful. Um, and before signing off, just let me say thank you also for all the beautiful work you do for the music community around the world. As I said in the beginning, you are not just a wonderfully talented composer, but you are a true music ambassador that bring people together through the power and the joy of music. I'm so humbled by that. Thank you, Maurizio. No, I, I, no but I really mean it. I mean... You are a real treasure, <laughs> and especially through the virtual choir project, you brought together so many different people and gave everyone a sense of joy and purpose and the idea that anything is possible with music. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you for that. And thank you for having Maurizio. It's, it's uh, my it, honor, really. <laughs> thank you for It's such for a accepting. pleasure to speak with you. And, and we, we will see each other in person as soon as possible. Absolutely. I look forward to that. Eric, thank you so much for staying with me and for being on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. And let's keep in touch. And thank you again. Absolutely. Be well, Maurizio. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.